Welcome to One Sweet Dream, a podcast where we explore the dream that was and is the Beatles. to laugh and when the sun is out I've got something I can laugh about I feel good in a special way I'm in love and it's a sunny day Hello and welcome to One Sweet Dream. This is part two of the Maureen Cleave profile on Paul McCartney. I'm your host Diana Erickson and I'm joined by Duncan Driver. As a reminder, these Maureen Cleave interviews for the Evening Standard were done by the Beatles with strategic intent to reset the view of them. They didn't like the one-dimensional images created by Hard Day's Night and Help, and this was their attempt to address that by allowing Cleave to profile them, to give the world a peek into their worlds, and therefore into who they really were as people. This is perhaps important to keep in mind when considering these profiles, what each Beatle had decided to share with us. Now, I don't think they were necessarily all that strategic about how they portrayed themselves. And Maureen knew them fairly well and seems to have spent considerable time with them, which is probably why she was able to get a good handle on them. As I mentioned in part one, Paul was unique among the Beatles in that he didn't allow Cleve into his home, which is revealing in itself. It not only reflects his need for boundaries and privacy, but it also highlights the difference in his lifestyle. Meeting Cleve in a restaurant was partly necessitated by the fact that he was still living with the Ashers and was about to move into his new home with Jane Asher. But also he had chosen not to settle in the suburbs like the other Beatles, or more importantly, with the other Beatles, which again reveals an important aspect of McCartney's character. In part one, we discussed the first half of this interview. Cleve began the interview by challenging our view of Paul warning us not to be misled by his music or innocent expression, revealing that there was a much more clever, playful, cunning, and ambitious artist behind the music. She portrayed him as a man on a mission to conquer the world of art and culture, and with the talent and drive to do so. She emphasizes his complexity and warned against underestimating him. In part two, we get much more insight into Paul's views of the world. I also have a host perspective at the conclusion of our episode. And following that, there is a full read of her profile on Paul. Well, I think that's about all the setup we need. So let's jump back into Maureen Clee's fascinating profile on Paul McCartney. This is part two. Your day breaks, your mind aches. You find that all her words of kindness linger on when she no longer needs she wakes up, she makes up, she takes her time and doesn't feel she has to hurry. She no longer needs you, and in her eyes you see nothing. No sign of love behind the tears, cried for no one. A love that should have lasted years. All right, let's do this. Okay. Um, again, tell me when to stop. Paul's father was a cotton salesman and his mother was a midwife. She died when he was 14. 
He can remember when he was five, standing on his mother's backyard, 72 Western Avenue speak, and asking himself what he would be when he grew up. No answer came back to me, he said, disappointed. He likes quick results. The problem cropped up again when he was 17. I had just enough GCEs to get into teacher's training college. I worked it out, five O-levels plus one A-level equals teaching, but I had a horror of doing something ordinary. I, I think that she's hit upon something that's, that's pretty fundamental to Paul when she says he has a horror, or he says it, but she, you know, she reports it. He has a horror of do something ordinary. I feel like for Paul, and this is part of his complexity, predictable, boring and ordinary are all yes. very pejorative terms yes. and they all like they're synonymous they mean the same thing for him but curiously normal is not one of those that word seems to represent a state of like level-headed well-adjusted acceptance <laughs> that is virtuous a but normal person all the other words are a terrible thing to be <laughs> Uh, like I said, I think that that is Paul's um, invisibility cloak. But that's an interesting point, that he doesn't want to do anything ordinary. And uh, of course he wouldn't, because he's not ordinary. Why would this guy with these... He's extraordinary. Of course he's going to have a horror of doing something ordinary. But I think that's a good distinction to make. You know how I've been talking about Paul as a person of action? Maybe he wants to do things that are extraordinary, but it's this idea in Paul's, it seems to be this notion that because you do something extraordinary does not make you special. You know, you can be a normal person and do extraordinary things. I wonder if that's the struggle in his mind. Maybe that, that's it. I think it's also got something to do with... Um, wanting to surprise and beguile and maybe maybe be slightly evasive as well uh like not wanting to repeat oneself i'm thinking of that that bit in um get back when paul seems so crestfallen about right. the fact that all we're doing is making another album and i have to get it into my head that's what it is it's another album yes and john tries to reassure him by saying making albums is what we do <laughs> But for Paul, oh, it's just, it's boring that we're just doing this again. Okay, first of all, that's a fabulous point. Second of all, the, the, the dichotomy between normal and ordinary is really interesting because one of his defining characteristics as an artist is he never repeats anything. Even when he's playing the bass in a song, he doesn't play the same thing twice. You know, in a song, he'll change it up constantly. And so this is somebody who, as an artist, constantly challenges himself to do something different and extraordinary. But his determination to call himself normal undermines how experimental it probably impacts the view of him as an artist. Yeah, that's right. His, his compulsion to reduce everything down to the status of being little um, tends, to, um, tends to obscure his achievements. I wish somebody asked him about the normal thing and said, well, Paul, you're, you're one of the most famous people in the world. One of the most awarded people in the world. You will go down that's in history. Not normal. <laughs> um, that's not normal. Why do you insist on saying that you're normal and, and, you know, trying to communicate that you're normal. And I wonder what he would say. I, I think because he sees himself, he's a human being. 
I wonder if he just differentiates between I am a person with normal feelings and I have extraordinary skills. And he tries not to mix those two up, maybe? Like that's a way of him keeping his feet on the ground? Yeah, yeah. I think he he recognizes that um, in order to be able to make art that resonates with people, that has a universalizable aspect to it, he has to be able to connect to other people. Yeah. And, And that's kind of where the normal compulsiveness comes from. I also suspect that it could have to do with pulse sanity, You know, that he may be afraid of becoming disconnected from normal. And he's probably seen so many people get out of control with ego. And he might have had elements of that in the 60s. You know, it seems like after the breakup of the Beatles, he had a really down period, obviously. Um, But there seems to have been a determination to keep his feet on the ground. You know, like like literally he was lying in dirt in in Scotland, he's like, I need to get earthier. I need to chop my own trees. I need to be connected, you know? And also, I think, um, just to be a good person. Yes. Rather than a wanker, an arsehole. <laughs> right, right, um, right. Like, uh, you know, the, the screenwriter William Goldman, he wrote um, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, mm-hmm. Marathon Man, The Princess Bride, wonderful yeah. Oh, films. yeah, yeah, I read his book, actually. Yeah. Yeah, um, but... Uh, somebody asked him, what's Robert Redford really like? Yeah. Which is kind of an inane question. But he had a great response to it. He didn't actually say anything about Robert Redford in response. He just said, imagine what you would be like if for 25 years nobody ever said the word no to you. (laughs) Uh, And I think for Paul to, to, to fail to be normal and ground himself is to kind of veer into that territory you know what I mean? Yeah. The kind of royalty territory in a way that uh, that we spoke about with John. <laughs> that John was kind of comfortable with, yes. I thought the other interesting point of this um, paragraph was the mention of his mother. I find in the 60s, Paul, it's taken Paul 60, 70 years to be able to really talk about his mother. It feels like in the 60s, he would say that his mother had died when he was 14. And then that's all. He would move on. He's not even going to go there to discuss the impact on him. It's not something that Paul talked about or dwelled on for a long time. What comes to mind is our discussion about the lyrics book. She's so present in that. Yeah, it's interesting the way John and Paul would often um, be quite uh, upfront about their mother's death to see how people would react to it. Yeah. But that's very different to being, you know, forthcoming and sharing how you feel about it. Yes, that's something that a number of people said about Paul is that he would tell you this about his mother pretty quickly. You know, when he and Jane broke up, he apparently was brokenhearted and said, and I told her all my real feelings about my mother and whatever I'm paraphrasing, but saying that he had actually talked to her about his mother. And it, it was something that he just didn't do for a long, long time. But if you read the lyrics, you see how she's everywhere, you know? Yeah. And I, I just found that interesting that it was stated and then moved on and there was nothing connected to it, you know? I think she's even there in what he means when he talks about normal. I do I too. Think, yeah, like I said, he associates normalcy with virtue. And I think that's very tied to what he thinks about his own mother the way he remembers her 
the kind of Mother Mary halo of sainthood that seems to to be surround her. I think so too. I think that his his um, hatred of snobbery and um, his issue with money and becoming the laird or the lord of a manor is is a fear of turning his back on his mother, you know, that would be to, to turn his back on her. And it even takes the form of, you know, never throwing away a plastic bag in case he wants to put his sandwiches in it. <laughs> <laughs> it's problematic. Oh my God, Paul McCartney needed a lot of therapy. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, yes, I agree with you completely. I think that's part of... Uh, his issue with money and that's part of his issue with becoming not normal is is yeah. is it's a fear of becoming different uh than his family yeah i totally agree up the rice in the church where a wedding has been lives in a dream waits at the window wearing the face that she keeps in a jar by the door who is it for all the lonely people where do they all come from all the lonely people where do And so he filled in no forms for teachers training college. With things I don't want to do, Paul said, well, I just don't do them. Okay, stop. All right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that is a, a fairly defining characteristic about Paul McCartney too. God, she gets a lot with him. Like in some ways, when I first read this article, I was like, Paul talks about a lot of things. He doesn't really go deep. But then when you really, really explore this article, go deeply into it, there's so many things that she captured that are defining characteristics of Paul McCartney. He does not do what he does not want to do. Mm. Yeah, right from day one. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he even, like, when he seems to be petulant or starry, sometimes he's just making that point, like um, not showing up to that first band meeting with Brian, that... Uh, maybe there's like a, a power thing involved, but I think it's just a way of saying um, you are never going to tell me to do something that I don't want to do because you work for me and not the other way around. Well, yes, it's a sense of Paul knows how good he is, what his worth is. It, you know, we could go off on a long tangent about this, but I think that, you know, positioning him as petulant uh, or diva-esque is not to empathize with McCartney in some of these situations. Like this is a, a man who becomes the most famous person in the world along with the other Beatles, but then he gets the biggest contracts in the seventies. You don't get to be successful like that without being driven, knowing your worth. Um, and, and that's what the petulant and diva-esque suggests that Paul's just being a baby rather than he's an extremely smart, determined man. Yeah. I sometimes suspect that this characterization of Paul as a diva betrays an underlying assumption that Paul should have just gone along with anything John wanted. Mm -hmm. You know, 
-hmm. If John bucks at something, it's smart, or John was being a leader. But if Paul does, he's characterized as being a diva. From my perspective, Paul not wanting to go with Klein seems sensible given what they knew. Yeah. Paul questioning the order of Lennon McCartney seems smart. And pulling a stunt like showing up late for a meeting with a manager that's in love with your partner when you probably want to sign with him seems passive aggressive, but also clever or at least understandable. This is a tough position. Yeah. And I think to suggest that um, he's just being a baby or a diva is to disrespect the fact that McCartney wanted to be treated equally. I, I, I have no, I have no time for that positioning. Yeah, I totally agree. I think the cute one, the pretty one really underestimates Paul McCartney. Yeah. Certainly Alan Klein did. He didn't realize that Paul can't be forced to do what he doesn't want to do. Yeah, that's right. But the surprising thing is the other three knew what he was like. Yeah. So he should have known that to get him on board, McCartney had to be seduced by Klein mm -hmm. rather than bullied. Yeah. So um, Paul always says that if he hadn't gone to school, he would have been a teacher. And that's one way of kind of normalizing Paul. You know, like John would have gone to jail. So John is like, I was an, an artist or nothing. I would have married an old lady or an old man to be an artist, or I would have gone to jail. You know, so you kind of get the, the fact, the idea that, well, John Lennon is just pure artist. Whereas Paul's always like, well, I would have been a teacher. And people are always like, see, he's so normal. He would have been a teacher if he hadn't been the world's most famous musician. And that drives me crazy because that's literally like saying to Mozart, all right, well, you did a little bit of school and we can probably get you a job as a teacher, but nothing else. And him going, well, if that's the only thing I can do and I can't make it as a musician, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's such a weird thing where Paul is saying, literally, it's the only thing I could think of to do that I was qualified for. He's never said I wanted to be a teacher. You know what I mean? And then specifically he says here, but he didn't want to do that. And so I think being a teacher is one of the most important jobs in the world. So this is nothing against teaching. I just think that Paul's positioning as potentially a teacher, if not a musician, is purely because that's the only thing he could possibly do, you know? Yeah, I think, again, it comes to back to his mother as well, because that's the thing that his mother wanted for him. So, you know, but she wanted them to be he, a doctor. Oh, really? I thought she wanted them to be a teacher. No, a My doctor. mistake. I'm sorry. Yeah, no. well, she wanted him to lift the family up and go to college and all that kind of thing. So I, I think you're right that, you know, doing something professional that like that was beyond working class to be a teacher. Right. So Paul was able to do that is <laughs> kind of like the fact yeah, that Paul yeah. is smart enough to get in and do that almost undermines his artistic um, creds in, in some ways, because like George is like, I couldn't do anything except be a musician. And Paul is saying this here. He only wanted to be a musician, so he didn't even fill out the forms. So. Yeah, yeah, that's
He ended up a beetle. We knew something would happen sooner or later. We always had this little blind Bethlehem star ahead of us. Fame is what everyone wants in some form or another. There must be millions of people all over the world annoyed that people haven't discovered them. What's up, they ask themselves. What's up? Like I you love have... the fact that he's doing a version of his um, something will happen and it yeah. goes. Yeah. I prefer this. I, I, yes. As much as I like the idea of the van breaking down and them all wondering what will happen and somebody saying something will happen and that's a nice little cynic doki for um, their, their sort of um, their fated quality. Just the phrase, this little blind Bethlehem star is actually a wonderfully concentrated poetic way of making the same point. Well, also, it, it attaches just something will happen. You don't know if it's something good or bad. He's actually finishing the statement here. He's suggesting a sense of destiny. You know, it's kind of putting a qualifier on it that his anecdote right now doesn't, doesn't really um, include. It's interesting that both he and John talked about the fact that there's a sense of destiny, you know, for both of them. Again, if you go to Salovich's book about Paul, you know, he really does paint the picture of an extraordinary young man, you know, popular, the most talented, everybody loved him, you know, was writing his own songs. Both Paul and John both had this sense of destiny because they were extraordinary. Both of them were, both of them knew they were special. George knew he was special. Ringo knew he was special. Like these were all really incredibly talented people. So I understand why they thought something would happen. What I find really interesting though, is Paul's, Paul is so empathetic to other people. That is something that I think is really interesting with him. And it's a little bit different. And it's always stuck with me. This is that Paul is empathetic to realize that we felt like this and it happened to us, but maybe everybody feels like this, you know? Yeah. Um, I find the, the way she starts this little paragraph interesting. It's one of those little laconic phrases that do quite a bit of heavy lifting that she that it's a feature of all these profiles yeah. he ended up a beetle to me that suggests that to maureen cleave being a beetle is something that paul does rather than something that he is uh it, it ties to this idea of him being a beetle and also not being a beetle at the same time different way of making the same point that he's kind of got one foot in that and a foot, one other foot planted somewhere else. Yeah. It sort of um, aligns it with his profession. He asked what he was going to do with his life and his profession ended up being a beetle. I also think it's laconic in that she is saying that, well, at the end of the day, all that was left for him was to be a beetle. But I do, I do love the fact that he was empathetic enough to understand that their belief in themselves is something that many, many, many people feel and that it doesn't always come true for them. I've just seen a face I can't forget the time or place where we just met. She's just the girl for me and I want all the world to see we've met. Had it been another day, I might have looked the other way and I'd have never been aware. But as it is, I'll dream of her tonight. Falling, yes, I am falling, and she keeps calling.
back again I have never known the like of this I've been alone and I have missed things and kept out of sight One of the girls were never quite like this Fame in the end is getting off your parking fine because he wants your autograph and fame is being interrupted when you're eating by a 50 year old lady with a ponytail. The four of us are known to almost everybody in the world, but we don't feel that famous. I mean, we don't believe in our fame the way Zsa Zsa Gabor believes in hers. Stop. Okay. <laughs> I love a 50 year old lady with a ponytail. It's just so weirdly specific. So that suggests that that actually happened to him. Oh, I'm pretty <laughs> sure. And she probably tried to kiss Paul too. Yeah. You yeah. Know, there, there are some, some videos of him looking quite horrified. And, and he said that he was like, and there was a woman and she was like, 40 and she kissed me he was so horrified <laughs> 20 year old paul this old lady but yes as always with maureen cleave she manages to quote you know pull out the perfect detailed quotes and i think that paul has learned to be secretive from jane asher i think he's also learned to deal with fame from jane asher in terms of you know yeah it can be fun and, you know, he talked about driving to France at this time. And many years from now, he tells this tale about how he drove to France and then put on his little disguise, his little fake mustache. And, you know, somehow that totally confused everybody. And um, he went to the bar and tried to get in and he couldn't get in. And then he went home and ripped off the mustache and went back. And all of a sudden, everybody treated him like the prince that he is. And he, he says that he he realize that fame is actually a very good thing. I'd rather be famous than not be famous. And so, you know, it's, it's interesting that he says this, he understands that it's not that big a deal, but there is a benefit to it, right? In that it gives you some power. The, Paul and John's discussion about power, you know, John saw money as power. You know, he saw it as being a, something that enabled him to get away from people, from soft people. Whereas Paul says that fame is the small things. It's sort of the conveniences in your life, you know? Yeah, it's interesting that that John would use fame and money to better insulate himself from yes. the general public. Whereas that anecdote you described is Paul leveraging his fame to... Um, to be able to uh, not interact with them, but to kind of, to, to revel in his fame amongst the general public. Exactly, exactly, to be celebrated. Yeah, yeah. Although um, that might that might sort of give the impression, I think of Paul as some shallow person who who's in desperate need of that kind of validation. I think he's, he's also saying things that suggest almost the opposite in this statement. Like oh, absolutely. When he gets to this point about Zsa Zsa Gabor and that she believes in her fame in a way that the Beatles don't, that I think is revealing of the way Paul differentiates between Absolutely. his public persona and his private person. And Absolutely. some might consider Paul to be inauthentic on this basis if he has two selves. But I think that would be an uncharitable way to think about it. It's more a case of resisting the temptation to let the public face of Maka become the private person, which would be problematic. I mean, believing in your fame, I think in this case means becoming the public version of yourself right. in every space of life, which would not be a healthy thing. Yeah. No. 
we don't buy into this version of ourselves that is above everyone else and something special. You know, I don't think they were particularly changed by fame. That's what I think that he is saying, um, that the view of us portrayed out into the world, we understand that that's not us. You know, just because others think we're special does not mean that we are accepting our elevated status. It's like in that really early, uh, I think it's like 62 um, TV interviews that they do. And Paul's one is about how John and I will probably write songs. Um, but George talks about looking at newspaper articles about the Beatles and it being weird to read them and that he can read them as though he's reading about somebody else. And he yes. doesn't actually make the mental connection between the Beatles on the front page of the newspaper right. and the friends that he's in a band with. That's the kind of separation that I think Paul is also talking about here. And you see that in Get Back, you know, the fact that they, they find it so amusing to read stuff about them that clearly has nothing to do with them, like the, as if they're like they're cartoon characters. It's Drugs like they take from a slipping image. Exactly. Well, that one actually seemed to <laughs> that hit one's home pretty accurate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that one. But, but, you know, like in the first few days when they're reading the Beatle Monthly, it's kind of like they're reading about their cartoon characters. You yeah. know, there's two concepts that we're, we're talking about here. One that the Beatles are able to separate what is, is an image. And they talk about this a lot, an image versus the reality. And none of them really buy into this image. But the additional point that I'm making is because I know who Jaja Gabor is, and I don't know if you remember what she was like, but she was very um, regal yes. and full of her, herself. And they met her apparently, and they didn't like her. And I think because she expected to be treated like a star. And I think that there's a little bit of that built into Paul's um, comment that, you know, if we bought into the public image, we might think we were above everybody else. But, you know, he consistently says that it's not me that changed. It's everybody else's view of me. Like, I don't feel any different. It must be very odd when you're like, one day I'm nothing. And the next day I'm like the hottest person on earth. And frankly, I look the same. Yeah. But okay, you know, I think that there is a difference between Paul being competitive and wanting to be extremely successful and reading into success as positive <laughs> affirmation for his art. Mm. And actually believing in his fame and thinking that he is elevated and, yeah. and better than other people. No, he, he, I think you're right. He wants to be successful and he wants to be relevant. Um, but the fame is kind of like an index of that rather than the end in itself. Exactly. Exactly. Being a songwriter, he is now very rich. He has learned to discipline himself with money. I like the idea of anything grand and rich as a novelty, he said. 
I like chauffeurs as a novelty. But take John. John discovered the other day that he liked Bourneville chocolate. Well, he bought a consignment. I mean, it was on every table in the house, and in a week he was pretty sick of it. I've learned to do things in clumps. I mean, if you can have everything, there's no point in having everything, is there? I don't think I want much more money. Okay, stop. That's Let's, a good uh, pause point, yeah, isn't it? It is a rather provocative statement. Okay, so what do you think of this? Um, well, we've already talked about it at the outset of yeah. this discussion. So it's trolling, just, it's trolling yeah. of John, yes. Yeah, but I just reiterate the point that he recognizes, I mean, part of this is about delayed gratification and, yes, and yes, yes. in moderation, but mm-hmm. it's also um, Paul's recognition of the fact that the real contentment uh, comes in from in ways other than just sating your appetites. Um, and he's wise for his age, I think. Oh, he's very wise. Yeah. Yeah. The delayed gratification is actually an interesting point because Paul, I think because he's so competitive, I think he understands the need for gratification, for a win. There has to be some sort of motivator there. You know, it's interesting that he recognizes what he needs you know, like, I think that part of it is restraint. He talks about the fact that, you know, it's very much a Jim McCartney kind of ideas, restraint and moderation, you know, that kind of thing. And yeah. for his young 23-year-old rock star, it's incredibly mature and wise, as you said, to have said this kind of thing. Yeah. Although apparently this did not apply to his sexual exploits, which were not moderate. Yeah, that's right. But I also think it's probably Paul understanding himself that if when things become too easy, they're not that much fun, that he likes the game, he likes the win. And so he can't he can't indulge too much because then things lose their excitement for him. Yeah, I think um, this points to something that some people misunderstand about Paul. Um I think he he really means it when he says, if you can have everything, there's no point in having everything. I don't think I want much more money. Sometimes when Paul puts out like 20 different editions of an album or when the A reserve ticket prices are $500 each, people accuse him of just being acquisitive. Like this is just a money-making business for him. And that totally misunderstands his motivation. I think like fame, the money is an index of the fact that to people's minds, he's worth it because he's the best. Absolutely. Absolutely. I I think, you know, you can make the point by saying if Paul just wanted to use his talents to make as much money as possible, he could go do a residency in Las Vegas on a gold piano, but he is never going to do that. No, absolutely. I think that that's, uh, that's key to the point that we just made about fame and about, I think with Paul, it's always about um it, it's about competition it's about constantly being reassured that he's the best it's about success the money itself does not mean that much to him the material wealth i mean you, all you have to do is look at how paul lives when i look at how he lives it's like i kind of get the romanticism of this little shack in scotland and you know when they just wanted to get away from the money men, money problems, narcissism of the Beatles and their hangers on and fame and all of that. I get sort of just being like, let's just live in a shack. No electricity, no hot water, we'll ride out for, you know, there was, I'm sure there was something very sexy about that. 
for a little while. But that didn't mean Paul McCartney had to live like that forever, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's like he um, he goes 180 degrees by going to Scotland in late 69. Yeah. And ever since then, he's been making increasing concessions to living in a slightly grander way. It's like he, he has to concede every little point in that process and, and will only do it reluctantly. Well, yeah, and I think that was a battle for Heather Mills. Heather Mills was like, what, what the fuck, Paul? You're a billionaire. Could we just have some nice things? And then he met Nancy and Nancy was like, you know what? I'll take it from here, Paul. We're going to live in my places because she's got she's a gazillionaire. And it's funny because Paul recently has made some comments where he kind of, I think, is recognizing his weirdness with money. But I think that that is is um, reflective of Paul's got some real stories around money in his mind. As we talked about earlier, I think it's connected to his beliefs around good people, goodness, his parents and his belief in what upper class people are. You know, this idea of not wanting to send his kids to Eton, his fear of having nannies, mm. his said that he only wanted to have like a five bedroom house because he didn't want his kids to have wings. There's some stories uh, in Paul's mind about having money that scares him. <laughs> yeah. You know? Destroying, you know, his... Um whatever vestige of normalcy remains in him and, and his moral center. <laughs> exactly. There, there seems to be a goodness associated with not having money. I suspect the important element for him is security because he grew up in a family where that was financially insecure. And I think he's never been able to get rid of that feeling. And I think having some money as to take care of, like Paul apparently will um, spend money on, you know, a, for people when they need help with hospital stays and stuff like that. I think that that's okay for him. I'm sure there's some complicated value system in Paul's mind about when it's okay to spend money and when it's not okay. And I think it's just mixed up in his mind about his parents were good people and they didn't have money. But I don't think it's fake here when he says, I don't think I want much more money. In fact, even in the Hunter book, Paul and Jane say uh, in the spring of 1968 that they are considering downsizing from Cavendish and moving to the country. So even then there was a desire to move away from excess. I think there's a fear of what more money does to you. Mm. No, I, I quite agree. I'm just remembering the, um, the scene in many, and not many years from now, it's in um, the Wingspan documentary where Mary is interviewing him and they show this footage of the children playing in Scotland and it looks like they're playing in a rubbish dump. <laughs> she says that, yeah. yeah. Paul sort of shakes his head about it, saying, yeah, I know, what were we thinking? But you can see he's also quite proud of the fact that they did that and he wouldn't seek to go back in time and change it. It's not a regret. Oh, no. I, I think you're right that he romanticizes it. He was like, that's when I became a real person. I started to get my own Christmas trees and build things with my hands. I think that what Linda was really good for is when you look at this period, Paul is so in his head and in his mind and creativity, and he's on such a manic high that one can sense that he might've floated away. You know, I sort of get the sense that Linda was so earthy that she kind of, in my mind, kind of put a hand on him and tethered him to the earth and saved him in that way. Yeah. 
I think he, he looks back and there is something that is, he's very proud of, like you said, that he learned to do everything again on his own. And again, like Mary does comment on how weird it was. She was like, dad, we were in a lumber yard, you know, growing <laughs> up. And can you imagine you look at it and you're like, that is so unsafe, Paul. It is bizarre, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I think that with Paul, there's always this pull attraction to wealth and repulsion by it. And I think one of the things about Linda was she was rich enough to say, we can live however we want. You know, we can live any way that we want. He meets Linda, who's like, screw it. This is a cool way to live. This is how artists live. And then I think it kind of was a turn on for her for him he's like oh, cool we can have money and then live like we have no money that's that's kind of the fantasy you know yeah that's right i think maybe their little cocoon in scotland yeah gave mccartney the ability to not always be on to his artistic self his yeah, innate right. wisdom his deeper self at least outside of yeah. the spotlight of the the media you know yeah i suspect on his farm at home that this is what their home life enabled for him. That's right. I'm looking through you. Where did you go? I thought I knew you. What did I know? You don't look different, but you have changed. I'm looking His interest in politics is confined solely to this general election. Just like this Liston-Clay fight, he said, here are two people flogging away at each other. One of them is kidding he hasn't seen the other, and the other one is pretending to be the head boy of the school, crying because they've lost the football match on Saturday. The terrible thing is seeing them going round adapting themselves, being friends with the people. Forget the 50 guinea suit, they say, and then they say, oh, look, it's torn, just like yours. Mm. After Wilson got hit in the eye, he had to say, I won't press charges. He can't even get annoyed. I bet he wanted to wring the little bastard's neck. Um, I don't have a great deal to say about, about this, except that I like how forthcoming Paul is here with his own opinions about politics. I think he's much more reticent and, and guarded, much less inclined to share his personal views about, say, Trump or Boris Johnson now than he was about the equivalent people then. Well, he'll just write a song about it now. Yeah. yeah. And I'll kind of say that it's about this, but I'll also say it's kind of not about that. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. In some ways, like the first couple of times I read this, I thought, this is kind of boring. Like, I felt like he was obfuscating a little bit or, you know, steering the conversation away from himself in some ways. And, you know, when I got this, I was like, why is he talking about this? You know, I get so much about Ringo in Ringo's episode, whereas it kind of felt like it was Paul being Paul being private and saying something and nothing at once. But I actually did notice a couple of things after having, you know, 
this is the whole point of this exercise is to go a little deeper on this. So yeah. I really thought about it. And I, I, there's two things. One, I, we just talked about this Paul's horror of fake elites. You know, that this, he's sort of got this working class distrust of not intellectuals. I think he likes the Ashers, the, 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 teachers and prefix at his school. He's got respect for them, but it's the upper classes that Paul seems to have a suspicion of in this sense that they're snobby and fake that he, like, for example, he's friends with Tara Brown, but Michael said that Tara was always very open and lovely. Like he just, you know, so I think that he does differentiate between them. And so I think that what he's reacting to here is the, the lack of authenticity Yes, it's the kind of um, the politician's equivalent of the Jar Jar Gabor comment. Exactly, exactly, which which he doesn't like. But then I also thought this line was interesting when he talks about after Wilson got hit in the eye, he had to say, I won't press charges. He can't even get annoyed. I bet he wanted to wring that little bastard's neck. I, I found this interesting when I sat for, with it for a little bit because I think Paul empathizes here. You know, because he said, I bet, Mm -hmm. you know, and Paul's so controlled. Like, I do get the sense in this that McCartney is very, very in control of all of his powers here. Paul can kind of have fun with Maureen because he knows how charming and seductive he can be. Mm -hmm. But there's the the flip side to this. You know how Paul, uh, John will say, well, Paul was willing to get into the suits. Well, so was John, frankly. But I, I do think that. Paul did play the nice guy. He did often make up for John when John would overreact or create some kind of disaster with a comment. Paul would step in. And I don't think it's a PR move. I think that that's his inclination is to be polite, to play nice, to minimize things. So in other words, I think it's Paul's natural character to be nice first, to be polite yes. first. He talks about being taught by his father to always stand up, to always be respectful. It's kind of like he had this training in a way that I think more so than any of the other Beatles did. And I don't think it's a fakeness. It's his father's training, you know, yeah. of being a gentleman. Mm. And I think it, it, it also is uh, an aspect of his interest in other people, his innate curiosity. I do too. So it's his inclination to be nice. He talked about that. He said, I wasn't fake. I was told to be polite. I was told to ask people how they are because that's kind and that's putting people at their ease. And that's what I think being a nice person is. So I don't think it's fake, but I think what comes along with putting others first in terms of a general politeness means putting people at ease. And that also means not always putting yourself first. And I think that sometimes Paul in these situations of fame or with different people probably swallowed a lot of what he wanted to say. Mm, And I think that in the breakup, in his desire to play nice, to think of John's feelings of think of not inciting John too much, I think he swallowed a lot. And, you know, Linda would say to him, it doesn't matter. It's just us. You don't need to explain to yourself. But I think, I think underneath it, there's an anger in Paul simmering under the surface. And I don't think it's a defining feature, but I think it's there. And I think it's why Paul gets himself tied in knots because he doesn't feel like he can just 
be angry. And he's not allowed to be angry about a lot of things. He's not allowed to be angry at John about the breakup, about the way he was treated. And so I tie this all back to a comment here. He can't even get annoyed. I bet he wanted to wring that little bastard's neck. I just get a sense of Paul empathizes with the frustration of having to be so controlled. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, I ne- I hadn't even thought to make the connection to um, his own circumstances, but I think you're quite right too. And, and you know, we talked about before about Paul's w- wicked wit. That's also a part of Paul that is true. I don't think it's Paul being fake, not showing that side of him. I think he probably thinks it's mean. So keeps that just among his crew of friends where he feels like he can make fun of somebody and it's not really going to hurt their feelings. Whereas John might actually say it, which is seen as being more blunt, but it also hurts people's feelings. Yeah, I think um, there are some Leninistas who might consider that Paul is somehow being inauthentic. Yes. But I think it's just Paul... Paul takes the view that um, having no filter is is not in and of itself a good thing. And it doesn't yeah, mean yeah. That you're more authentic or more honest. It just means you've got no filter. <laughs> yeah. I think he said to some somebody that like John could really hurt people. Yes, that was cool that he did that, but he could hurt people. And I, I don't want it to seem like I'm saying Paul's perfect. I'm kind of defending what I think is an authenticity and a well-meaningness on Paul's side. But it also sometimes drives me fucking insane as a fan of Paul's listening to him sometimes. Sometimes I wish it was just like, stop, Paul, just say what you mean. Stop worrying about everybody. And it drives me insane, as does his privacy. I sometimes think like, Paul, just say things. You don't have to be so perfect or private. I think a lot of these things are annoying as a Paul fan to have to deal with, but I don't think it's coming from a bad place. No, I don't think so either. I think, yeah, he he has a more, um, uh, I hesitate to say this in some ways, but I think I'll say it anyway, a more sophisticated idea of what um, being honest and authentic means. And he doesn't confuse it with sharing every single thought that pops into your head. Yes, I agree. And and uh, to on uh, you know to have John's back for a second here, I think the one thing that he does that Paul doesn't is sometimes he's incredibly brave about you know how we said like in this period Paul's going and he's dipping his toe in everything and incorporating into their work. And he did go on to TV shows and he did talk about it. So it's not like Paul wasn't brave, but John will go on blast. He will go and champion something and really go on out on a limb. And I think that's what's admirable about John is sometimes oh, he has yeah. courage in ways that Paul doesn't. And and not not that you were being critical of this. I'm just saying that, you know, it, it might sound like I'm saying the way that Paul does it is better. And I think in some ways it is more sophisticated because he doesn't hurt people. He doesn't tend to say things without thinking about them. But in some ways, John's great courage and just going with his gut is admirable too. Yeah, and I think Paul is one of the people who admires it in the same way that he says he he um, wishes that Wilson could have wrung the little bastard's neck. He he thinks, I, I would like to be a bit more like John and not be so hung up yes. about whether I'm saying and doing the exactly, right thing. Exactly, exactly. You, you get the sense that he empathizes and it may be something that frustrates him about himself. Yeah, but sure. But for sure. Moving on. Yes, moving on. 
yesterday. All my troubles seem so far away. Now it looks as though they're here to stay. Oh, I believe in yesterday. Suddenly, I'm not half the man I used to be. There's a shadow hanging over. Baptized a Catholic, his interest in religion is flabby. Indeed, if it were not for his concern with the afterlife, he would call himself an atheist. He is no longer, however, obsessed with worry about growing old. That wore off, he said. If our bodies stayed young, our minds would have to stay young, and nobody wants that. But Bertrand Russell seems all right. I wouldn't mind being like him at all. Any thoughts on on this one? Um, I don't know that I would agree with Cleve that Paul's interest in religion is flabby. It's not a word I'd use. It may be that he doesn't subscribe to a particular religion, and so... Um, his his beliefs are, are sort of vaguer. Maybe that's what she means. But um, or he's not clear about them. Yes. Yeah, or that, yeah. Yes. Um, I think Paul would agree with someone who said it's vaguely arrogant to claim that you understand everything about what the afterlife consists of or doesn't mm-hmm. consist of, and that the only appropriate attitude to take is a sort of an, an agnostic uncertainty about things that are much bigger than you are. Yeah, he's always said that that stems from his experience with his mother's death, you know, yeah. that 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 view, that skepticism, that cynicism, that lack of belief, I think, probably comes from his profound grief and devastation over yeah. what happened. You know, Paul is by nature extremely optimistic. But, you know, certainly that had to have confused him. Yeah, it makes me think, too, of, you know, that story Paul tells about he was with someone like Robert Fraser or Barry Miles. And I think it's one of it's that person who tells this story. But um, they're out walking Martha very early one morning, like 6 a.m. And this this strange old man appears and says hello. And they say hello too. And then the old man just kind of vanishes and they can't understand where he could have gone. And Paul interprets it as a sort of spiritual, vaguely religious experience. Um, And I think that's, that's probably the kind of thing that Maureen Cleave might call flabby here. Um, But for Paul, I think it means spiritualism is grounded in these real but fleeting encounters, like the spirit of George now being inside a tree. tree. I love, which I love. Um, Yes. And then Linda as every creature that is, you know, on his farm. But there is a sense of he believes in magic and, and the unknown. And I think he's gotten more interested in religion. I have picked up on some comments that would lead me to believe that he has taken a greater interest in the unknown, in the spiritual world. Mm. Um, And as you said, the fact that he believes that George is in a tree, that Linda is in in nature. The lens flare of a camera when he's talking about... Or a peacock. Yes, exactly. Or or a peacock, yeah. Exactly, exactly. So I, I definitely think he believes in something mystical, magical, spiritual world. I do think it's a very odd thing with a 23-year-old being somewhat obsessed with growing old and his obsession with older people. I find that quite fascinating. Yeah, I, do, I think it is, it's, it's unusual, certainly. Um, 
I like the fact that when he says uh, he wouldn't mind being like Bertrand Russell at all, it prompted me to think, actually, I think Paul is now <laughs> very much like the old Bertrand Russell was then. Yes. That, you know, the old Paul is quite twinkly and playful uh, with a great imagination and wit and somehow still a lot of energy inside the relatively frail body. Um, and you can sense that there's some sort of reserve of power in the background. A bit like a real-life Dumbledore. <laughs> <laughs> also gentlemanly and elegant, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, you know what? As I said, I get the sense that he remembers this period incredibly well, like it imprinted on his his view of the world. So it would not surprise me is that if that was kind of a guiding light uh, to Paul, you know, a sort of a, a view of what he might actually like to grow into. You know, Paul talks about in the lyrics how just when he was young, he, he for some reason was attracted or at least helped older people. There seems to have been an empathy and a curiosity or some, he seems to have picked up on some sadness that he tried to alleviate or help anyways. And this is where, again, Maureen Cleaves, as much as I love her defiant stance on the fact that uh, Eleanor Rigby says nothing about Paul, nor does his looks, um, I, I do think it's not a true statement. Yeah. Because I think those songs, his earnestness, his sweetness, actually are very core to him, core to him helping the old lady or his his empathy or sadness for the older person that lived this way, you know? Yeah. Um, and like I've mentioned it a couple of times over the course of this discussion, but just his, his genuine curiosity about other people's yes. lives. Yes. In a way that just John doesn't have. Mm. Like John is so interesting because he thinks he's the most interesting person in the world. And yeah, and so we all think that, you know, it's like, well, you are, John, tell us about you. And I use this quote in a different episode, but it was something that I thought and somebody else had written is that Paul kind of makes you feel like the world is an okay place because he studies it. He empathizes with it. And John kind of makes you feel like you're okay because, yeah. you know, Paul is constantly saying the world is okay because he he finds the world interesting and he sees the good in the world. Whereas John, because he's so interesting, and he kind of shares his foibles and his ups and downs. He makes you feel okay with your own. So both of these are good. I don't mean to say one is better than the other. No, but they—they—they. They, they, I, I, it's a profound and I think quite an accurate um, thing to say about the difference in between them and how they—they they appeal to you in, in slightly different ways. Yeah. And actually, one other note on, on Paul and religion is when I was looking at the day-to-day, -day, Paul talked about the fact that they were looking into doing a, a film on what if Jesus came back to life at that time. <laughs> and maybe he picked this up from John. John's very deep interest in, in Jesus. I think that Paul and John are always talking to each other. You know, One of my favorite quotes from Paul comes from this period where he says that Paul and John are always whistling at each other. I whistle to him, he whistles to me. And it shows how symbiotic and how connected they are. And how, from Paul's perspective, the game is the constant play back and forth. Whereas John might have said something different about how he and Paul work together. He might have liked a different thing. Anyway. When I call you up 
It is surprising to find him in favour of subsidies for the arts and on the side of the BBC. What America needs, in his opinion, is a BBC. Whether you want to listen to it or not, he said, it's there. They hardly have any plays on television in America. Here we have lots of plays. You hear people say, I like a good play. Well, in America, like in 1984, plays are out of the dictionary. They have willed themselves into this. Okay, stop. Mm Mm-hmm. So I, I think that first paragraph, it's, it's surprising to find him in favor of subsidies for the arts and on the side of the BBC. And so uh, I kind of see him as being hugely influenced by the Ashers at this point, because it really is the stance of a liberal arts student to be yeah, very yeah. pro-liberal um, socialist and I can see how that would dovetail well with his upbringing, even though he was working class. I talked to Krasalovich about this, like his family, even though they didn't have a lot of money, they weren't typically working class in that they were well read. You know, his father was a musician and his mother was, you know, a nurse and they seemed to read a lot and, and be interested in the arts in music and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I can see how those two dovetail well that Paul's upbringing with parents that read and loved music, but were working class and didn't have the money to see these things, as well as being involved with the Ashers, would lead him to have this perspective. I'm surprised that Maureen Cleave would think of Paul as being uh, not in favour of subsidies of the arts or not on the side of the BBC, um, because it seems to me something that he is so naturally inclined to. Like, it's almost it's similar to Maureen Cleave saying it is surprising to see Paul McCartney as a fan of the monarchy. Well, of course he is. He's always been. Do you, do you know what I mean? He likes those slightly um, folly-like traditional institutions, and the BBC is very much one of them. Well, she said he's complicated too at the beginning, but yeah. I think you're right that it does suggest that she has some assumptions about Paul. And, yeah. and I wonder if this is just what she thinks of Paul or whether this is her uh, view of rock stars. Mm, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. But I think he legitimately is a hippie and bohemian. And I think he has an appreciation for eccentricities. And as you said, the follies, which is what the BBC and all these little societies do is they preserve that. You know? Exactly. Exactly. He likes that stuff. Well, he's like that. You know, it, it's it's eccentricity and a, a very English kind of um, support of eccentricity. Well, Paul is eccentric. You know, he's very eccentric himself. You know, John often refers to Paul's mask. 
I feel like he puts on this normal guy mask when he doesn't want to explain himself when he, you know, for a number of reasons. But when you think of it, like Paul is somebody who made a whole album and then invented the name Percy Thrills Thrillington, put in want ads in the paper, had an elaborate game by himself to amuse himself. Basically it served no real purpose. Um, (laughs) You know, he loves birding, you know, like he's a birder. There's just like parts of Paul, that are very eccentric, but I think it informs his work. Yeah, totally. And um, yeah, Percy Thrills Thrillington is a good example of it. I wonder if it's connected to his upbringing at all, because you think about how interested in surrealism Mike was, like riding around Liverpool buses with a handkerchief stuck in his mouth. I wonder (laughs) if there's some connection to things they both experienced as part of their their adolescent life. I don't know. Well, or shared. Like we talked about John seeing the world in a slightly surreal way. Yeah. Mike is very funny and, you know, and slightly absurd. Like maybe it's the, the McCartney version of the absurdist surreal way of looking at the world and finding the humor and the interest in the world, you know, mm, mm, mm. quite possibly, it it does jive with his love of Magritte, where everything is proper, and then one small thing is eccentric or odd, you know. Yeah, totally. Painting his ear blue, as John said. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, John got it. Yeah, it makes me sad for them, and it's a lousy country where anyone who is black is made to seem a dirty N word. So there is a statue of a good N-word doffing his hat and being polite in the gutter. I saw a picture of it. We look at things a lot better over here. We have a million little societies preserving things. We have little societies to preserve barrels of beer and little John Benjamin societies and little Ban the Bomb societies. Oh, Septed Isle, he said, and went on to discuss what he hmm. likes to call the teenage thing. Hmm. So what little have you got societies. to say? There you go. Yes, yes, exactly. Well, okay, so this is the quote from Paul that I think is every bit as provocative as John's Hmm. and as George's. And so we just talked about John being bold with his statements. But at this point in 1966, Paul McCartney is willing to be every bit as radical and bold in his views um, about what he believes in. Yeah, and he's... He's, he comes across as a little bit judgmental here. America yes. has willed itself into this position. Yes. And this is what I don't like about Americans, and they're all like this. Yes. <laughs> that, that is true. That is true. It's weird because he seems to have always liked America. He married an American. You know, he loves loved being in 69, but I think this is the height of swinging 60s and lives with the Ashers. He has all these British friends swinging 60s. Maybe he's feeling like this is where where it's at right now, where they're doing the most interesting things. You know, he's part of the IT, you know, International Times. You know what I mean? Like, it's surprising that Paul's so anti-American at this point. I know. And and earlier on, she would, Maureen Cleave, that is, she would say, um, he he quotes the Septed Isles uh, speech from Shakespeare apropos of nothing. But I think it's actually clear what he's doing here. He starts talking about all of these great British institutions, the preserving barrels of beer, John Benjamin societies, ban the bomb societies. And then he realizes he sort of like gets this self-conscious sight of himself 
standing on top of a soapbox waving the flag for Great Britain. And so he says, oh, Septed Isle, in a slightly knowing, exactly. self-conscious way to, to say, I, I'm, I'm sort of in that vein, aren't I? Yes, yes. I, I do think he's making fun of himself in a way. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. Like he's kind yeah. of taking the piss out of himself a little bit. That's right. So yeah, to say, oh, Septed Isle, at the end of that speech is almost like at the end of all of these examples, he would say, he said patriotically but in that slightly ironic way it's right right the intent so it was john's comment that obviously hit a nerve in america and and created the massive brouhaha that led to basically the beatles quitting touring and had a lot of long-term effects but actually paul's comment i think here is every bit as provocative Mm. every bit as brave in fact paul's picture was put on the cover of date book was yeah a date book and they led with his comment because they anticipated that this is what would hit the nerve and i can't believe it didn't i don't know if it was just like a year early but i'm shocked like can you believe that this didn't get any reaction yeah as as casually dismissive as john might be of religion uh, in what he said Paul is being equally casually dismissive of America and the American way of life. Well, yes, uh, yes. It's odd that, that nobody in America seems to have bristled at that. <laughs> well, exactly. Like, it's it's an inflammatory statement, and he is being outwardly judgmental yeah, in yeah. a way that John was not. Like, John was casually dismissive of religion, which in itself was a problem, probably. But in this way, Paul is being actively judgmental. And so they led with his picture, his his um, quote, and I'm shocked that it didn't really instigate any kind of reaction, just a shrug, I guess. And, mm. you know, the long term effect of John's comment is that, you know, they had all this brouhaha, this drama in the U.S., but there's also been a long term effect of it impacted John's self-image and that it has been picked up and repeated in every book since then because they have to cover it because it impacted the touring so much, you know? Even if they didn't want to, they have to talk about John's statement. And rarely do they talk about Paul's statement or George's statement. And in some ways, this really impacted their images, you know? Like if if Paul's had caught fire, I suspect that Paul would have had the reputation for being more outspoken. Yeah, I wonder, you know, John also often gets the reputation as someone who, because he's so out there and so unfiltered, um, that he gets away with saying a lot of things. Yes, none of yes, the other yes. Get away he's with. forgiven, yes. Yeah, maybe this is a, a kind of a, an intriguing instance of the opposite, where because John is known as the sarcastic, caustic beetle, his statements got read with I a greater so. degree of scrutiny, whereas because Paul's Mr. Nice Guy and Mr. Charming, so. he can get away with saying these really critical things. I think so. And I think that what Maureen said at the beginning, they put a beautiful picture of Paul uh, looking up to the side, long eyelashes, big eyes. Maybe people were like, he didn't really mean it. You know, yeah. like, I don't know if his looks can be deceiving in that people assume he's sweet and not that provocative. Somebody who looks like that couldn't really mean it. Whereas John's persona played into his line and escalated it because people expected that. It's kind of confirmation bias with both of these guys. You know, it's like, oh, well, 
Paul Sweet, so he didn't mean it. John's an instigator, so let's look at what he had to say. Exactly, yeah. I think you're probably right to say part of it is the face value of how how Paul looks. He can bat his eyelashes and say just about <laughs> anything <laughs> and probably, uh, yeah, and probably it, it gets ignored or swept under the rug. Yeah. I read uh, Larry Kane's book. It's called When They Were Boys. And he makes a couple of really interesting points about Paul being a, a great seducer of women. And he said we should have all emulated his approach, which was actually to talk to women. Um, also, he makes the point that Paul is fiercely independent, that Paul is private, and that it does him no good. But anyways, his other point about Paul was that Paul was very uh, outspoken when it came to racism. And he talks about in 64, they were going to play at the Gator Bowl football stadium in Jacksonville, Florida, and it was going to be um, racially segregated. And Paul stood up first and said, well, that's rubbish. Tell them we're not going to play uh, there if the N-word uh, are seated separately. And then everybody followed. And, and then he said that Paul repeatedly did this in his life. In other words, this was an authentic passion of Paul's. Yeah. I would I would agree. The one other thing that was interesting to me about that quote was there's a statue of a good N-word doffing his hat and being polite in the gutter. I saw a picture of it. Uh, I think I think there's part of him that empathizes a two-tiered system or a system where there's stratas. I don't yeah. know. Just intuitively, I think that class is playing here. Just his wording there makes me think it's coming from a place of anger too and his own potential um, feelings of being lesser than or even though he's very open and he's embraced by the Ashers, I still think with Paul there's a little bit of anger about class issues. Yeah, curious. Like the the statue is somehow telling a whole um a whole class or a whole group of of people um this is the box that we would like to put you in and he's probably dealt with that in in a different way himself empathizing with it yes yeah. and he's felt like that and and now he's outside of it you know they broke out of it now they are in power <laughs> now the beatles are more powerful as we said in the john episode than the people that you know that they were might have felt below before and now maybe he can be judged not judgmental but he can say that's bullshit you know <laughs> yeah i think um in some ways like the most in potentially incendiary or, or condescending element of what he has to say is the next little statement which, which runs like this he thinks the americans had it coming to them oh. and he <laughs> and he is delighted that when they got it from was us there they were in America, he said, all getting house trained for adulthood with their indisputable principle of life. Short hair equals men, long hair equals women. Well, we got rid of that small convention for them. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, he's being so so condescending, isn't he? So condescending. And and you know, the fact is is that both John and Paul had to deal with this in their own homes. It's surprising to me that England was so was so controlled in some ways and yet so open-minded in some ways, much more mm. so than America. Like the fact that they were more willing to embrace the long hair, the the leather, you know, the pink hats that the Beatles wore, the cowboy boots. Like yeah. the, the UK was so restrained in some ways and yet 
that was allowed in Liverpool. Yeah, I, I'm no expert. I'm no cultural historian. But I, I do take your point and I agree with it. I think um, people might have had tremulous, you know, pearl-clutching um, concerns about Elvis Presley or about long hair, but that's as far as they extended. It didn't incite sort of anger and action in the way that it seems to have done in certain parts of America. Yeah, you know, it was very clean cut. Elvis was the shot of sexuality, but there was an innocence to America. And the Beatles, they sort of were breaking down some barriers of male versus female. But at the same time, they were highly sexual, you know, an interesting, intoxicating combo. Yeah, and I think there's an androgynous element to both John and Paul, maybe in slightly different ways. But um, that's... I I agree. I agree. I think that Paul always has been comfortable with a little bit of androgyny. Certainly in the 70s, Paul embraced it quite a bit. You know, I think that was in vogue at that time as well. But I think that's an element to Paul's personality. I think Paul's very masculine in many ways, in many ways that I actually think he's more sometimes dumb guy than John. Mm. Uh, But also there is a empathy with females and there is something that is beautifully feminine about Paul too. And that's what Chris Salovich said. He felt like Paul was very well balanced between the feminine and the masculine. Yeah, I would agree with that. And as um, as much as John and Yoko begin to resemble each other in the way they dress and the way they um, their aspect, I suppose, um, the same is true of Paul and Linda. Yeah, yeah, with the matching mullets. Exactly, and the moon boots. And everything. Yeah, exactly. You can't kid me the last generation were any more moral than we are. They hid it better. If you wheedle it out of people, they were just as bad as we are, only they grew out of it. Perhaps, he said with the air of one hitting on the truth, perhaps they grew too tired for it. Okay, stop. I don't know what he means by that. What do you think? Oh, I thought this was quite funny because with George, George kind of has this view that the last generation just didn't get it. You know, do you remember? There's a couple of very judgy lines. Whereas with Paul, I like the fact that he gets that it's not like they're the smarter generation. There's something very wise and mature about this perspective Mm. that, you know, this is the guy that wrote Your Mother Should Know, which I always think Mm. is a bit of a um, a sexual innuendo. Yeah, well, hidden gem, but also with sexual innuendo. He He seems to get that they were no better than us. Maybe it's the fact that he grew up with this family, maybe it was that that made him a little bit more open to the fact that he they are not the only generation that, you know, are into sex and music and, and being defiant. But so then perhaps he said with the air of one hitting on the truth, perhaps they grew too tired for it. I think he's talking about being rebellious and sexual. Yes. And so I think he's saying that they were just as bad as us, but then eventually you settle down because you just get too tired having all the sex and going out all the time. 
Right. Which I think okay. is friggin' hilarious because it's kind of true, kind of not. Uh, you know what? You know what? I'd love to have that line read to Paul McCartney nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> is it still the case, Paul? <laughs> yes, um, Mr. Fayou, yeah. Yeah, Mr. Fayou. I, I feel like the, the tone of this and some of the other comments he makes about old people, his general interest in them, um, it's like he takes the attitude, um, all right, they're no better than than we are, but neither are they any worse. Exactly. Like, yeah, it's like he he he's instinctually um, suspicious of assuming that the way we do things now is superior to the way people used to do things. Like it, I think he'll accept that um, I don't know a '60s counterculture represents him better than like the 1940s war generation. Yes, but he's also not willing to think that those people who lived 30 years ago uh, are so much less superior or less sophisticated because of that. He's not going to make the mistake of accusing the past. That's for, right. For, for, for making the mistake of not being the present. Do you know what I mean? Yes, and that's an excellent point. He doesn't think they're better or more innocent. He's just more realistic that humans are humans. Yeah. And we probably are no worse than they were, you know? Exactly. No better, no worse, just different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I like that. It's pretty sophisticated, actually. I, and again, I like it too, especially in uh, a world in which so many people are so prone to criticizing the past for the, for their flaws and judging them by the standards of the present. I don't well, think Paul would do that. Yes, exactly. What can I do? What can I be? When I'm with you, I want to stay there. If I'm true, I'll never leave, and if I do, I know the way there. Ooh, and I suddenly see you. Ooh, did I tell you I need you every single day of my life? He doesn't really know what he will do next. He is confident it will be exciting. He will shortly move into a house he has bought in North London. One gathers that it was built in 1830 and that it is the most elegant house in England. Not least of its charms for Paul is that it has a street lamp post outside the front gate. Okay, stop. He, okay. Stop. Okay, I just have a couple of comments about this sure, one. Sure, sure. So in John's interview, he talks about, you know, that this is really a, a stop along the way saying, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, but I know what I'm doing now isn't it. And there's this sense that he's unfulfilled and that this is not it. And the only one that gets that halo of being ambitious for greater things is John. And again, I'm not blaming John for that. It's the way that uh, the myth has grown, that John was the only one that was outspoken and the only one that was ambitious to do other things. Whereas the way that they articulate it is quite different in that Paul seems satisfied here. Yes. Whereas John seems unsatisfied. Yeah, um, I get the impression that for John, not knowing what his purpose is in life is a source of frustration. Whereas for Paul, uh, not knowing what he's going to do next is exciting. And the the kind of the, the blank slate of that is like getting in a car, driving off and not knowing what direction you're going to come back in or, or where you're even headed. There's a kind of fr- boundless freedom to that possibility for him. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's a great point again, about, about maybe Paul trusting in the world a little bit more, uh, yeah. you know, and trusting his own abilities. He knows he, his talents are uh, limitless. There's such an optimism of what he can do, what they can do. And I don't think it, it is just about him. I think it's about them, about yeah. uh, the Beatles at this point. But I think you hit on something really important, which is purpose. And I think mm. that, I think Paul believes he's doing what he's supposed to do with the, yeah. with music. Like he feels like it is his life's work and he's happy with it. And obviously he wants to paint and write and support the IT and fight racism. But I feel like he may be entirely happy in his main job being music. Whereas yeah. John seems to, I think John's happy with his main career being music or his understanding that that's his area of genius. But there's, he seems to undervalue what it gives to the world. John doesn't seem like he's happy, like doing music is meeting a greater purpose in life. Yeah, I feel like... Um... John needs the sort of the surety of a purpose in life. Otherwise he feels like he's flailing around in the dark. Um, whereas for Paul, the boundless possibility means more opportunity for growth. One of my favorite exchanges in all of Shakespeare is between uh, a young man called Coriolanus and his mother. And Coriolanus has a very John moment when he says, why would you have me false to my nature? rather say I play the man I am. It's a very John sentiment. Mm -hmm. But his mother comes back with something that I think is very Paul. Um, and her criticism of him is, you might be more the man you are when striving less to be so. Um, Interesting. That's, That's fabulous. One. I love it. And it, it, to me, it's so Paul, like the idea that you might discover under you know pockets of yes. your own identity that would have been closed to you if you just like put a disguise on and wander off in this direction for a while and that's so true to how paul approaches his his work i think that his work becomes lesser when he gets caught up in his myth later in his career and tries to impress yeah. others yeah, and this yeah. view of what Paul McCartney is supposed to be, which is why he, you know, when he's doing that too much, I think he takes on the firemen or these other masks mm. to set himself free because I think he's always trying to not do that. Yeah. But that, that's just a brilliant point. And I think, you know, as we discussed in the John episode, I think that John's drive to do something greater in the world all has to do with his childhood too. It's like this, it's this, it's this part of his nature of feeling special. I feel like he feels that there is a burden on him to do something extraordinarily important in the world. Yeah, yeah. This idea of like, well, maybe I had this childhood because I was meant to do something important and maybe music's not important. Maybe I need to do something else. Paul doesn't seem to have that. The impetus on Paul is to, to be the success that his, his family wanted him to be. Mm. and to be um, all that he could be. There seems to be in Paul's family that that is the onus, is make the most of your 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 talents, you know? Yeah, totally. Think of what you're saying You can get it wrong and still you think that it's all right Think of what I'm saying We can work it out and get it straight I'll say goodnight We can work it out We can work it out Time for fuss 
He prepared to drive to Weybridge to write songs. He has one in his pocket about loneliness and old age. In fact, a heart-rending song. It concerns Miss Eleanor Rigby. Eleanor Rigby, it begins, picks up the rice in a church where a wedding has been. But as I have said, Paul's songs are no clue to Paul. I don't know whether poets think they have to experience things to write about them, but I can tell you our songs are nearly all imagination, 90% imagination. I don't think Beethoven was in a really wicked mood all the time. He was? Of course, <laughs> he assumed the grave, sweet, innocent expression. Oh, he said, Beethoven can't be the same as us then after all. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, okay, so she finishes with the point that she made at the beginning. But as we said, we've embraced her point and challenged that. And so I think that when he says, when he says, I don't know whether poets think they have to experience the things to write about them, but I can tell you our songs are nearly all imagination, 90% imagination. Um, I think that's a really interesting point because it's something, it's the idea that John and Yoko would, would embrace the notion that all, you know, art is more authentic when it's about the self. But the thing mm -hmm. is, I feel like there's this genius artist inside of Paul wrapped in something else. And in some ways it's unknowable to Paul. And I think he kind of likes it that way. Oh yeah. The magic thing again. It's like to, um, to turn his spirituality into religious faith would be to sort of codify it in a way that makes it dry up. And the same is true of his creativity. Right. So I sometimes think that Paul McCartney doesn't even realize that when he is imagining things, he is tapping into himself. You know, that that when he's talking about Eleanor Rigby, he has observed people and empathized with them and felt with them. And probably because he has felt like this, you know, of not course. that, you know, if you write about a serial killer, that doesn't mean that you're actually a serial killer. Hopefully, because, you know, Paul did write Maxwell Silverhammer as well. So let's hope he is yes. not exactly like all of his characters. But maybe he's not even aware at this point that he is connecting to parts of him, to emotions that are within there. Or maybe he doesn't want to admit it. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, totally. No, uh, we've already spoken about how Paul's songs are no clue to Paul is not entirely true. They are clues. They're just uh, cryptic clues sometimes. Yes, yes. You know, Paul is often characterized by people who don't like him as inauthentic. Yeah. But, you know, when you go and you look at this and you realize that this guy, I could read this article today and be kind of surprised at how sure and confident and, and straightforward Paul is. That might take me aback a little bit, but that's about it. You know, we got all of his other favorite things in here. Yeah, yeah. I think if he's if he is inauthentic, then he's been inauthentic in exactly the same way for over 50 years now. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's quite authentic. <laughs> it's true. It's true. All right. Thank you so much for doing this with me. This has been so much fun. I guess uh, John is going to be the next episode that comes out. Mm, which exciting. Yes, which we've already done as discussed. <laughs> and uh, then I look forward to recording our next session, which will be George. The Quiet Beetle. Yes, I can't wait to get so loud quiet. about the Quiet Beetle. Exactly. The not so quiet beetle. <laughs> yeah, indeed. So we'll have to go very deeply into that because George is a fascinating character as well in 1966. Can't wait to do that one. So thank you. Thank you for making this time. My pleasure. Take care. I won't delay. Wait till I come.
that concludes our deep dive into Maureen Cleve's profile on Paul McCartney. But before I go, I have a host perspective. Despite talking for four hours, Duncan and I did not have the opportunity to address our takeaways from this article. So I just have a few final observations because after I do all my research and really dig into these profiles, I try and step back and reflect on the feeling that each piece leaves me with and the themes or ideas that stay with me. For example, Ringo's piece left me with a sense of sweetness and and calm. I was charmed by his old soul wisdom, by his originality and the warmth and zen of his existence with Maureen. And after John's, well, we'll get into that, but I was enchanted by his childlike openness, his eccentricity, his his self-centeredness, his vulnerability mixed with swagger. I found him incredibly amusing and endearing. And with Paul, despite Paul's best efforts to control this interview, Maureen did capture some important aspects of McCartney, and it left me with a few distinct impressions. First, and importantly, Maureen disrupted our romantic view of Paul as an innocent. I got the sense of Paul McCartney being much more of a player, being much more knowing, edgy, wily, ambitious. She warns against underestimating McCartney, predicting that he would surprise us all in the end. And I got how seductive and playful he could be. It made me think of the song, Michelle, I want you, I want you, I want you. I think you know by now I'll get to you somehow. That sounds about right for the guy she describes. And I don't say this because I'm personally concerned with Paul McCartney's seductiveness. I just think that this is always at play with McCartney in life and in his music. He seduces, he's relentless, he's ambitious. These are important parts to his character. McCartney may be kind, but he's not sweet or innocent. He's a player. He's also fully aware of his powers. Here he was in this interview teasing us with his upcoming masterwork, Eleanor Rigby. Second, this profile left me with a sense of momentum and exhilaration. More than any of the other profiles, it brought to light the excitement of the swinging 60s. All that was going on, and it portrayed McCartney as so open to that world, determined to learn and absorb. But He is also competitive. He is a man on a mission to conquer this scene. Third was a sense of his independence. Cleve repeatedly stresses the fact that McCartney, alone among the Beatles, lives in London. The effect of this is it places McCartney outside of the Beatles, on his own mission. And this is important because independence is a key feature of McCartney's character, but also the impact of this has been perhaps underestimated in the Beatles story, or at least it has been misjudged. Because upon reflection, I think a little more than independence might be at play here. I wonder if some of this independence may have been necessitated by the dynamics of the Beatles. That for Paul to grow and stretch, he had to find space outside of the set roles within the Beatles. 
but also McCartney's desire to live apart may have been his way of dealing with the dynamics between him and John. For while they were insanely close, they were also highly reactive to each other. So events such as the peer pressure to take acid or John's insecurity around the song Yesterday or competitiveness for A-sides or even the dynamics around the Lennon-Epstein relationship, whatever that may have been, might have caused McCartney to pull back and establish his own base where he could regroup and protect his energy. Lennon later commented that he was the one who often reacted to McCartney's games. Not that I think that McCartney's independence was a game, but I think Paul had ways of asserting his prominence and power that kept Lennon in check and the relationship in balance. And interestingly, by 1967, a more mellow Lennon spent considerable time at Cavendish, living at Paul's place when they were writing Sgt. Pepper. And Lennon has said it was a peak for them. So Paul's independence may not have reflected a lack of desire for closeness, but rather Paul's way of managing the dynamic with Lennon. One has to wonder what Lennon might have thought reading this about his partner, who seemed to be so turned on by life, especially a life that was without him or the other Beatles. Actually, we know because he commented to Barry Miles in 1969 that he noticed that when he was going through murder, McCartney was full of confidence. He also highlighted that when they were physically separated, their partnership got false. So to Lennon, Paul's independence and physical separation were seen as a detriment. Yet, this might have also been what kept them balanced for so long. I also have to wonder if Lennon might have taken McCartney's genuine curiosity about the London scene and the avant-garde scene as a gauntlet thrown. And finally, there was one more impression that I was left with. Something that came later, and it was this. I was struck by McCartney's pragmatism, his down-to-earthness, his hyper-practicality, and how that had the effect of making him seem almost unemotional. And this, combined with his comments about his music, you know, yesterday was just scrambled eggs and Eleanor Rigby was just a figure of his imagination. All of this gave the impression that he was almost oddly businesslike <laughs> about making art. And I think this is what Cleve was getting at when she was saying his songs were no clue to his character. She was addressing the disconnect between McCartney's charming but sensible exterior and the deeply felt emotion of his music. And that's the dissonance. How can someone who is unemotional and practical write Eleanor Rigby here, there, and everywhere and for no one within months? Like, where is it coming from? Either Paul's just a savant genius who can channel these beautiful world-famous songs without them actually coming from his soul, or else he is deeply emotional in ways that he can't express in person or he keeps contained or hidden or separate from his public persona. Maybe it's because Paul doesn't recognize his own gifts. He seems to think that songs are just in the air or in the piano for anyone to find, and only he was smart enough to find them, or he and John were smart enough to find them, Maybe he just has two modes, artistic mode and public mode. 
Lenin's mode seemed more fused. Whatever he is thinking at that moment, he expresses, and then it could change an hour later. McCartney kind of almost acts like his own publicist, not that he's good at it, just in the way that you wouldn't necessarily know that the guy that is sitting there and talking is the one who actually created the art. Perhaps, as Freeman suggested, McCartney has just developed this practical exterior. He's found a way to pleasantly function without too much emotional investment, except when he's really interested in something, so that he can focus his energy on his art. That he is polite and charming uh, because it was rigorously instilled in him from his father. So this is how he interacts with the world. But the effect is that it's an odd disconnect. He discusses Eleanor Rigby, but he doesn't wax lyrical about the state of loneliness. He cheerily says he wants more buses and more, more old age pensioners. He speaks rationally and he writes music emotionally. Maybe he's so controlled and guarded because his emotions run so deep. Paula said when his mother died, he put up a wall. And maybe he did this to such an extent that he almost insulated himself from his feelings, instead channeling them into his art, a productive place for his emotions to appear, which is very, very British of him. Also, years later, when speaking about Jane Asher, he said that he always thought she was the drama queen, but eventually he realized that maybe he was the one who was creating the drama in their relationship. So... Maybe sensible was just his self-image, while he was hugely driven by his emotions. It seems that during the Beatles, McCartney was able to perform brilliantly at two levels. But that may not have been a sustainable state for him. Paul has said that one of Linda's most endearing early comments to him was to say that his humanness was allowed, that their favorite activity was to get lost and to live in the moment. I suspect she grounded him and allowed him to connect more deeply to himself, or she gave him the safety uh, to do that because she loved him for who he was when he wasn't performing. And that may be why Lennon and Harrison wanted to do LSD with him. They wanted to connect more deeply to that guy. I flagged this dichotomy about McCartney because I think it plays into the misunderstanding of him as an artist. I think how he presents is part of the issue. And I wonder if this may have contributed to some of his issues and misunderstandings with the other Beatles, that this very sensible, balanced exterior was misinterpreted as a lack of emotion. Even Cleve was led to believe that McCartney was half Beatle and half not. Something suggested a lack of commitment or emotional engagement. And this may have been how the other Beatles saw him as well. Fully committed to the business and platform of the Beatles, but not fully committed to the family of the Beatles. Now, I don't think this is true of Paul, but it could be that they read it this way. They didn't know how much McCartney loved them, and McCartney didn't know how they could not see it or hear it in his music. Anyway, I can only guess. I don't know how to fully reconcile the mystery that is Paul McCartney, 
I don't think I'm going to solve it here, but I think it's interesting to think about. And I think this piece, Maureen's profile, gives us additional insight into him. And maybe it gives us a few breadcrumbs for understanding some of this communication that came later. So that's my host perspective. I would like to thank Duncan Driver for being such an amazing partner in this series, equaling my enthusiasm and insanity and willingness to go deep. As discussed, we will be back soon with the John episode, followed by the George episode, followed by the Brian episode. So thank you for listening. If you are enjoying this podcast, please consider leaving the podcast a five-star rating or review. Or if you're inspired, please give it a shout out in social so that other people can find it. Also, I have a Patreon account in case you're interested in supporting the podcast. Support is hugely appreciated. And I'd like to give a shout out to all my wonderful patrons for their support and for their feedback on the episodes. So that's it for now. I will now leave you with Duncan Driver doing a full read of Maureen Cleef's profile on Paul McCartney. Beetle Lives, number four, by Maureen Cleave. Paul all alone, running hard to catch up with the music. The scene shifts from Weybridge to London. Paul McCartney's face often wears an expression of sweet, grave and trusting innocence. The expression is an engaging one, but it is no clue to his character. Those who like to think of Paul writing yesterday that song of aching beauty, would do well to remember that he himself always called it scrambled eggs. He is an interesting and complicated young man of 23. He arrives in the restaurant for lunch with a book he has just bought, a costly and significant looking paperback entitled In the Bronx and Other Stories. He opened it at random, composed his features and in a solemn voice began to read it aloud. Lucy had no panties on. Paul's party political program is for more houses, more buses, and more old-age pensioners for everyone. He is tall, agile, neatly dressed, and well-organized. His hair is never too long, and he is never at a loss for words. He is a terrible tease, an excellent mimic. He has wicked charm, a shriveling wit, a critical intelligence, and enormous talent. With Paul, you never get away with the ill-considered remark, the hazy recollection. He is self-conscious, nervy, restless, and on the go. He will surprise us all in the end. He is half beetle and half not. He relies on the others to the extent of having considered living in Weybridge with them. I thought maybe we should all be grown-ups together, he said. I then thought, I don't want to live in Weybridge. To their own self be true. Polonius, Hamlet. His conversation is as peppered as a restoration comedy with the sides of this sort. They can be disconcerting. Ocepted Isle is one he likes, but he relates it to nothing in particular. And so Paul lives alone in London. I love the look of London, he said. He goes to the pictures, does the Times crossword, drives himself around in his Mini or his Aston Martin DB6, goes shopping, keeps appointments, finds out what he wants to know. He tolerates a minimum of fuss. Chauffeurs and cars with black windows. He hates black windows. 
I'm thinking, he said tartly, of getting a bicycle with black windows. He enjoys moving without detection. He arranges to get in and out of the country, loves disguises, relishes writing songs under the pseudonym of one Bernard Webb, a student in Paris. Skiing recently, a photographer came up to him and said, You are Paul McCartney. Who, me? said Paul with the aforementioned expression on his face. And the man went away. It is possible his much publicized courtship of Miss Jane Asher has made him secretive. If anybody gets away with a quiet wedding, it will be Paul. At the moment, he is on a program of self-improvement that he is embarrassed to discuss. But his mind, by all accounts, is in a ferment. I don't want to sound like Jonathan Miller going on, he said, but I'm trying to cram everything in, all the things I've missed. People are saying things and painting things and writing things and composing things that are great, and I must know what people are doing. He has a music lesson a week from a composer, who is by no means thick, he said admiringly. At school I never got further than the six-finger exercise, satirical joke, and the other day I felt like an old person sitting there saying, I wish I'd learned to read music. So I started to learn. One of the first bits of music he wrote down was something for his girlfriend Jane to play on her classical guitar. He is fascinated by composers like Stockhausen and Luciano Berio. He is most anxious to write electronic music himself, lacks only the machines. He is fascinated by the work of the French playwright Alfred Jarry, Ubu Koku, Ubu Roy, and keeps urging Brian Epstein to stage them here. He would like to paint, he would like to write. Indeed, heaven knows what he is painting and writing and in what disguise at this very moment. He sees no limits to his own possibilities. Ideally speaking, he would like to know everything. I vaguely mind people knowing anything I don't know, he said. I will tell you what I feel strongly about, and that is most people's attitude to things like music and painting, culture with a capital C. If a navvy or a worky is seen coming out of an art gallery, it's a joke. Now, if all the person wants to do is find out about strip clubs in Hamburg, his mates would have thought that was all right. Paul's father was a cotton salesman, and his mother was a midwife. She died when he was 14. He could remember, when he was five, standing up at his mother's backyard, 72 Western Avenue, speak, and asking himself what he would be when he grew up. No answer came back to me, he said, disappointed. He likes quick results. The problem cropped up again when he was 17. I had just enough GCEs to get into a teacher's training college. I worked it out. Five O-levels plus one A-level equals teaching. But I had a horror of doing something ordinary. And so he filled in no forms for the teacher's training college. With things I don't want to do, Paul said, well, I just don't do them. He ended up a beetle. We know something would happen sooner or later. We always had this little blind Bethlehem star ahead of us. Fame is what everyone wants in some form or another. There may be millions of people all over the world annoyed that people haven't discovered them. What's up, they asked themselves. Fame, in the end, is getting off your parking fine because he wants your autograph. And fame is being interrupted when you're eating by a 50-year-old lady with a ponytail. The four of us are known to almost everyone in the world, but we don't feel that famous. I mean, we don't believe in our fame the way Zsa Zsa Gabor believes in hers. Being a songwriter, he is now very rich. He has learned to discipline himself with money. I like the idea of anything grand and rich as a novelty, he said. I like chauffeurs as a novelty, but take John. John discovered the other day that he liked Bourneville chocolate. Well, he bought a consignment. 
I mean, it was on every table in the house, and in a week he was pretty sick of it. I've learned to do things in clumps. I mean, if you can have everything, there's no point in having everything, is there? I don't think I want much more money. <laughs> His interest in politics is confined solely to this general election. Just like the Liston-Clay fight, he said, here are two people flogging away at each other. One of them kidding he hasn't seen the other, and the other one pretending to be the head boy of a school, crying because they've lost the football match on Saturday. The terrible thing is seeing them going around adapting themselves, being friends with the people. Forget the 50-guinea suit, they say, and then they say, oh look, it's torn just like yours. After Wilson got hit in the eye, he had to say, I won't press charges. He can't even get annoyed. I bet he wanted to wring the little bastard's neck. Baptised a Catholic, his interest in religion is flabby. Indeed, if it were not for his concern with the afterlife, he would call himself an atheist. He is no longer, however, obsessed with worry about growing old. That wore off, he said. If our bodies stayed young, our minds would have to stay young, and nobody wants that. But Bertrand Russell seems all right. I wouldn't mind being like him at all. It is surprising to find him in favour of subsidies for the arts and on the side of the BBC. What America needs, in his opinion, is a BBC. Whether you want to listen to it or not, he said, it's there. They have hardly any plays on television in America. Here we have a lot of plays. You hear people say, I like a good play. Well, in America, like in 1984, plays are out of the dictionary. They have willed themselves into this. It makes me sad for them. And it's a lousy country where anyone who is black is made to seem a dirty N-word. There is a statue of a good N-word doffing his hat and being polite in the gutter. I saw a picture of it. We look at things a lot better over here. We've made a million of these little societies preserving things. We have little societies to preserve barrels of beer, and little John Benjamin societies, and little Ban the Bomb societies. Oh, Septed Isle, he said, and went on to discuss what he likes to call the teenage thing. He thinks the Americans had it coming to them, and he is delighted that where they got it from was us. There they were in America, he said, all getting house trained for adulthood with their indisputable principle of life. Short hair equals men, long hair equals women. Well, we got rid of that small convention for them. You can't kid me the last generation were any more moral than we are. They hid it better. If you wheedle it out of people, they were just as bad as we are, only they grew out of it. Perhaps, he said, with the air of one hitting on the truth, perhaps they grew too tired for it. He doesn't really know what he will do next. He is confident that it will be exciting. He will shortly move into a house he has bought in North London. One gathers that it was built in 1830 and that it is the most elegant house in England. Not least of its charms for Paul is that it has a street lamp post outside its front gate. He prepared to drive to Weybridge to write songs. He had one in his pocket about loneliness and old age. In fact, a heart-rending song. It concerns Miss Eleanor Rigby. Eleanor Rigby, it begins, picks up the rice in a church where a wedding has been. But as I have said, Paul's songs are no clue to Paul. I don't know whether poets think that they have to experience things to write about them, but I can tell you our songs are nearly all imagination, 90% imagination. I don't think Beethoven was in a really wicked mood all the time. He was. Paul's face assumed the grave, sweet, innocent expression. Oh, he said, Beethoven can't be the same as us after all, then. <laughs> <laughs>